We've all seen that guy stood on the street wearing a kind of um, sandwich board placard <laughs> that says, the end of the world is nigh. Uh, there's one in every city. Well, I don't think I've seen one in Brisbane. Maybe Brisbane doesn't have one, but there's one in almost every city. And let's just say that the bearer of that placard that doesn't usually seem to be full of the joy of the Lord. And although most people walk by hardly seeming to notice, there is, I think, a fascination, not just among Christians, but among people in general, a fascination with the end times, Armageddon, the apocalypse, the end of the world, and all that stuff. Actually, there's a, a theological term for uh, the study of those things, the, the end times, and it's eschatology. You may... Uh, have come across that word. Hollywood makes quite a thing of it. End of the world type films seem to do well at the box office. Uh, a great number of books have been written on the subject and people are generally interested. Certainly we've all heard the erroneous predictions of those who claim to know when and how the end would come. Uh, a Taiwanese religious leader by the name of Hon Ming Chen established a religious movement called Chen Tao, or True Way. And it was a blend of Christianity, Buddhism, uh, UFO conspiracy theories, and Taiwanese folk religion. So you know that this prediction is going to be good, don't you? His prediction. Chen preached that God would appear on Channel 18 in the U.S., on March 25th, 1988, to announce to the world that he would descend to earth the following week in a physical form identical to Chen himself. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that that didn't happen. Now, as far as we know, the Thessalonians weren't coming up with any crackpot theories, but they were concerned about the date of Jesus' return. The second coming was at the forefront of their minds, and so Paul addresses it. In this letter. In fact, we might say that it's the central theme of this letter. Every chapter ends with a reminder that Jesus is going to return. So uh, let's just look at a few of these. Chapter one, it ends with these words. They tell you, sorry, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then chapter 2 ends with these words. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Then chapter 3. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The end of chapter 4 is all about uh, Jesus' second coming, and we've uh, heard that read today. And Paul describes in vivid detail uh, what that day will be like. And then chapter 5 ends with these words. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So Paul was keen to address this concern that the Thessalonians had, but why were they preoccupied with this in the first place? Well, to start with, it seems that they believed that Christ's return was imminent. I mean, literally any day, and that was, of course, having quite an impact on the community. Uh, you can find endless memes 
that advise you to live every day as if it were your last. Well, some of the Thessalonians were doing exactly that, and we can see just how impractical that was. Uh, Some of them had given up work, and I think we can sympathize with that. If you thought that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't get up and go to work in the morning. Paul addresses this in chapter 4, verse 11. He makes the point that it's unloving to give up work because you then become a burden to the rest of the church. Of course, he wasn't talking about the elderly or the infirm or those who just couldn't find employment. He's talking about those who refuse to work even when work was available because they're thinking, well, Jesus is going to come any moment. What do I want to be doing work for? So the Thessalonians thought that Christ's return was imminent. But they were also worried for those who had died. Obviously, some members of the community had died since Paul had left them. And they were asking, well, what happens to them? They died before Jesus' return. Does that mean that they miss out on everlasting life? They were asking these kind of questions. Not, not only that, there may have been people in the church who were elderly and infirm, and they might have been asking, well, what, what if I die before Jesus comes back? Will I miss out? Or the, maybe their family members were asking on their behalf. So this is one of the reasons that the Thessalonians wanted to know the precise date of Jesus' return. Kind of like, well, how long have I got to hold on for? Let's remember this was a persecuted church as well. And so that question, how long have I got to hold on for, is even more pertinent. So they're asking about the timing, uh, but there's a reason for it. There's a question behind the question, and Paul tackles it head on. And the question is this, what happens to believers when they die, and how does that tie in with Jesus' return? Chapter 4.13 says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul doesn't tell them not to grieve. Grief is a, a normal and right response to death. Jesus cried at the grave of his friend Lazarus. It's a, the shortest verse in the Bible, just two words, Jesus wept. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he still wept. But as Christians, along with that grief, there is also tremendous hope. The church is made up of every Christian who has ever lived and every Christian who will ever live. Presumably, a small minority of those will be physically present, alive on the earth, when Jesus returns. The rest will be raised up on that glorious day with new resurrection bodies to meet Jesus as he returns. Paul describes Jesus' appearing in a way that will be seen and heard by everyone. There will be no mistake in it. If you're alive when this happens, you won't be thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is the second coming. You will know. It's like that line from the film Heat. Whenever there's any doubt, there is no doubt. If you have to question it, it's not the second coming. The word that's often used to describe Jesus' return is parousia. And it was originally used to describe a visit made to a city by a visiting uh, important dignitary or king or monarch. 
Uh, the citizens would go out to meet, let's say, uh, the visiting king, and they would accompany him on the remainder of his journey into the city. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is describing. The whole church going up to meet Jesus in the air. First, those who have died, and then those who are still alive at the time. It's an amazing image. And how much of it is imagery and how much of it is a literal depiction of how it will be on the day, we'll have to wait and see. But it will be awesome. It'll be unmistakable. And I think unimaginable. I don't think we can quite picture it in our mind's eye, although Paul uh, helps us to do so. So what happens between now and then to those who have died in Christ? Well, Jesus said to that criminal who was crucified next to him, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That doesn't sound like that criminal is going to have to wait thousands of years to enter into his inheritance as a child of God. So I think it's likely that the soul goes immediately to be with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, those who have died will be united with a glorified body and raised to life in a very literal way. But I think the most important sentence in this passage comes in um, 4, verse 17. And so, we'll, and so we will be with the Lord forever. If we know and love Jesus, we will be with him forever, whether we live to see the second coming or not. So we grieve those who have passed away, as Paul puts it, those who have fallen asleep. But we do so with the sure and certain hope of resurrection life. So now Paul comes to the question of timing, and he begins chapter 5 like this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I don't think we can blame the Thessalonians for wanting to know the exact date. Even with far lesser events, we want to know the dates so that we can prepare for them. Uh, a student wants to know the date of his final exam so that he can plan and revise for it. Uh, when a couple decide to get married, the first thing they do is to set a date so that they can uh, start to organize themselves. But the Thessalonians were not given a date, and neither will we be. Uh, Jesus made two things very clear. He will return, and no one knows when except God the Father. This event will be sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night. You know, you don't get a phone call, do you, uh, and an unfamiliar voice comes on the line and says, uh, good evening, sorry to trouble you, I'm your local thief. I'd just like to make an appointment for uh, 2 a.m. tomorrow, and if you could leave all your valuables on the kitchen table, that'll be a real help. That doesn't happen. And if you've ever been burgled, you know that it comes as quite a shock. You weren't expecting it to happen. And this might seem like a strange analogy, because we know that Jesus will return. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we are expecting it. And getting burgled is horrendous, but the return of Christ will be the most wonderful event ever. It'll be the most joyful and exciting event ever. It will be wonderful, exciting, and joyful if you belong to Christ. If not, it'll be the opposite. It's the day when destruction will come on all those who oppose Jesus and his kingdom. 
Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, in other words, um, you know, everything's great. Destruction will come on them suddenly. We're talking about the day of the Lord, and Paul uses this exact phrase in verse 2. The day of the Lord is a thread that runs right the way through the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament and in the New. Now, hopefully, you watch the six-minute uh, vid- video that I put out on Slack. It's all about the day of the Lord. If you're not on Slack, get yourself on Slack. But it's all about the day of the Lord, and it'll help you to understand this better. But for those who didn't see it, let me summarize. The first day of the Lord that we see in the Bible is when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And the Pharaoh that appears in that account is the most malevolent, capricious, and stubbornly evil character in all of Scripture. And God comes against him in judgment. God destroys Pharaoh and his army, and he frees Israel from Pharaoh's corrupt and oppressive human system. That was the original day of the Lord. And the beginning of that is celebrated still by Jews today, the Passover. We've all heard of the Passover. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day when God takes decisive action against all that is corrupt and evil. Now, were it not for Jesus, we would all be included in the corrupt and evil category. But because of Jesus, on that day, we'll be declared not guilty. Not because we are good, but because God is good. Jesus made it very clear that there are two categories of people. Those who accept him and those who reject him. Those who love him and those who hate him. Those who belong to him and those who do not. We see this in so many of Jesus' parables. The sheep and the goats. The fishing net containing all kinds of fish that get sorted into two piles. The wheat and the chaff. The wheat and the weeds. The narrow gate and the wide gate. And so on. And Paul affirms this distinction in chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. So Paul is making a distinction between the children of light for whom the day of the Lord will be an occasion of immeasurable joy and the children of darkness for whom it will be one of unimaginable terror. When I was in my early 20s, I knew and understood the Christian message and uh, deep down I believed it to be true, but I would not submit my life to Christ. I would not surrender to Christ. I would not allow him to reign in my life at that time. And I lived a selfish, depraved, unwholesome life. And at some point during that time, I had a dream. And I don't know whether it was a warning from God, but it certainly felt like it. It is the most vivid dream I've ever had. And it's one of only about three that I remember. So in this dream, I was going on, going about my business. I can't remember what I was doing. I don't, I don't think it was important. Um, when all of a sudden I heard a deep, harsh, demonic-sounding voice, a despairing voice, very loud, and it shouted, It's the end of the world! And I froze, terrified. And I was terrified because I knew that I'd rejected Christ. And I was on the same side as that dreadful voice that I'd heard. 
Now, I wish I could say that I turned my life around immediately. I didn't, but that dream played on my mind, and it was one of many things that God used to bring me back to him. Paul is saying that on the day, Paul is saying that on the day of the Lord, many people will be like me in that dream, except it won't be a dream. And Paul describes them in verses seven and eight. He says that they are unprepared in the dark, asleep or drunk. They're in darkness. They can't see the world as it really is. If you've ever arrived at an unfamiliar place late at night when it's dark, you'll know just how different things look In the daylight, those who belong to Christ have had their eyes opened to the spiritual realities of this world. They're asleep. They're unresponsive to God's promptings, like someone in a very deep slumber. But they're also unprepared, like a sentry who has nodded off when he's supposed to be the eyes and the ears of the troop. Jesus said, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. Don't get caught sleeping. And he told lots of parables about those who were unprepared and missed out as a result. And Paul says they're drunk. If you've ever had to look after a drunk person and you were sober, you know just how befuddled the mind can become. Drunk people do and say the most stupid and senseless things. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As foolish as a drunk person who has no sense of what they're saying. Those who don't know Christ are in darkness. They're sleeping. They're drunk. So like Jesus, Paul is saying, don't worry about when this will happen. That information is known only to God. Just make sure you're ready for it when it does happen. The day of the Lord the return of the king, the day when evil is finally toppled forever, will be a day of great joy for those who know and love Jesus and a day of terror for those who do not. So how do we prepare for this day? Well, if you haven't already, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Acts 2 verse 21 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, it says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then a bit further on, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God loves us, and he sent us his son Jesus so that the day of the Lord might be a day of rejoicing. No one who genuinely turns to Christ will be rejected, no matter what lies in their past. God is a just judge. He will deal with evil. But he's also a loving saviour who longs for us to be with him forever. The loving response to God who has saved us is a life of faithful obedience. I wonder if Jesus returns tomorrow, what will he find us doing? What will he find us striving for? What will he find us prioritizing? How well will he find us loving God and neighbor? The day of the Lord is coming. Paul reminds us of that in every chapter of this letter 
uh, 1 Thessalonians. And we're reminded of it every week when we proclaim Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And what a wonderful day that will be when he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we live in a world that is in opposition to you, that has rejected you. We recognize that we live in a world that is full of evil and pain and heartache. And we thank you that we can be fully confident that your son Jesus will return to make all things new, to judge the living and the dead, to destroy evil forever and to draw his people to himself forever. And so, Father, we pray that we, we will live in expectation of this day, knowing that it will one day come, that we'll devote our lives to you and live lives that are pleasing to you in every way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.